scripture this morning is from Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4, from the Christian Standard Bible. Sorry, Mark. (laughs) Okay, all right, here we go. All right, I'll start again. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, Pam. Well, uh, it is always a great joy uh, for my family and I to worship with our brothers and sisters here at Christ Central. Um, But to be invited uh, to open God's Word with you on this Sunday in particular, uh, the Sunday before we as a nation celebrate the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is truly uh, one of the great privileges of my life. Um, And as I prayed about what to preach on today, it seemed appropriate uh, to me that we consider Dr. King's dream together. And as we do so, uh, I want us to look at where the dream originated, uh, what the dream has had to overcome, how the dream will be fulfilled, and how we can live into it together. Dr. King uh, told us about the source of his dream for humanity in the last words that he spoke publicly on the night before he was assassinated, when on April 3rd, 1968, at the Church of God in Christ headquarters, he concluded the sermon, I've been to the mountaintop with this proclamation. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Which reveals where Dr. King's dream originated. It originated with God. And Dr. King was not the first or only person that God has given this dream to. The first person we know of that he gave it to was a man named Abram. And as Pam just read from Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. 
I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all people on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Now, this conversation between God and Abram took place in 2100 B.C. To understand the significance of this decision on Abram's part, we must remember that this was in the days before modern medicine, antibiotics, banking, nation states. And so to leave your father's house and your tribe and your people at the age of 75, to follow God into a land he had never seen, would have been considered by Abram's contemporaries complete insanity. To make matters worse, Abram did not have an heir. So not only was he stepping off the ledge of the safety of his family, tribe, and country of origin, he was traveling into an uncertain future in a foreign land without the social safety net of a son. But God explained to Abram that his childlessness was simply the first of many obstacles God's future for humanity was going to have to overcome. In Genesis 15, we read, After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him and said, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Then the Lord God said to Abraham, Abram this, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for, for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterwards they will go out with many possessions and you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, that's an audacious dream to give a man who is 100 years old and has no child. Married to a woman in her 90s who has no child. And yet, that is exactly what happened. Because the person writing the book of Genesis is Moses. And he is recording the fact that 450 years later, God reiterated and fulfilled this part of the dream in his lifetime. In Exodus 3, Moses says that this is what the Lord said to him. I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. And I know their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, 
Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore go, I am sending you to Pharaoh that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, like Abram, Moses faced several obstacles to the dream that God was giving him for God's people to overcome. First and foremost, it had to overcome the structural racism and political oppression of the superpower Egypt. Next, it had to overcome Moses' own timidity. He didn't really want to be this leader. And third, it had to overcome the resistance of the very people of God that God was trying to deliver. Once they got out of Egypt, they kind of wanted to go back. They missed it. There were certain comforts that they had become accustomed to, even if it cost them their freedom. And yet, the dream persisted. The people of God did arrive in the land of Canaan. They did possess the promised land for themselves. And even once they got there, they discovered that God's dream for them was bigger than their dream for themselves. God didn't merely intend to give his people a small country in a broken and fallen world. He intends to give his people the whole earth, resurrected and renewed. Hebrews 11 says this of them, They all died in the faith, although they had not received the things they were promised. They saw them from a distance, and they greeted them, and they confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking of where they came from, they would have had opportunity to return, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them his people. He is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In 700 B.C., God came to the prophet Isaiah, and he gave him a glimpse of what the recreated world was going to look like when the meek inherit the earth. Isaiah recorded this for us in Isaiah 11, where he said, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. A branch from its roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with the scepter of his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with the command of his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. The young ones will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit. A toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. 
On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the prophets. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. On that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people who survived from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the coast and islands of the west. Now, if you do a little research on the book of Isaiah, what you learn is that this promise was given to Isaiah at a time when the dream seemed beyond reach. God had always promised to send a Messiah, a king, a godly and righteous ruler. One of the descendants of David would rule and be that person. David's dad was named Jesse. But instead, these kings had become increasingly corrupt. And as a consequence, it looked like there was never going to be righteousness and justice and peace in the promised land, much less over all the earth. And rather than Jesse's line being a tree of righteousness, God explained it was about to become a stump. God was going to cut it down. Why? Because of the ethnocentricity of the Israelites. God intends for his people to be a kingdom of priests who bless the nations by proclaiming him as king and ourselves as our neighbor's servants for his sake. But we consistently take God's grace in our lives as a license for sinning. And instead of allowing God's gracious love to propel us into a life of service, we keep lining up with foolish political figures like Saul and false prophets like Balaam in an effort to get God to do our will in heaven instead of seeking to do his will on earth. Consequently, God disciplined his worldly people by allowing them to consistently be conquered by other nations so that they end up spread out all over the ancient world in Assyria and Egypt and Babylon, Greece, Rome, and elsewhere. And yet, God's dream for us persists. 700 years later, the promised branch of Jesse appeared. Matthew describes in this way in Matthew 12, 15 through 21, large crowds followed Jesus, and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit in him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Dr. King is one of those people who put their hope in the name of Jesus. And he received from God's word, God's dream, for us. So when Mahalia Jackson cried out on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. Dr. King responded, I have a dream. That one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I am a son of former slave owners. We are here to commune together today. Why? 
Because Dr. King had a dream of the day, even in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, with, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I was born in Columbus, Mississippi. I was raised in Clinton, Mississippi. And I am here today because of the grace of God. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with words of interposition and nullification, one day right down in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough, pieces, rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Now, when is that dream going to come true? Well, it'll be a reality when the promised branch of Jesse returns to earth as the resurrected Lord of glory, and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And then this is going to happen in Revelation 5, 1 through 10. I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. Now to understand this, this scroll is explaining what God's doing in the world. It is his sovereign plan. And none of us can understand it because we aren't worthy to understand it. John goes on, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and four living creatures and among the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood. From every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Now, I want us to think about the Apostle John's testimony here. What he is saying is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God took John from human space and time and placed him into God's space in eternity and gave him the ability to see our future, which means this is absolutely going to happen. 
All the days ordained for us are written in his book before any of them come to be, including this one. And it also means that Dr. King was right. We, as a people, will get to the promised land because his eyes had seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. But we're not there yet. And we won't be there until we experience what N.T. Wright calls life after, life after death. Which is why there are currently people in heaven who are complaining. Right? Now, if you're an Enneagram 1, this should encourage you. Right? It means you can be a righteous person and still have a problem in heaven that you want to complain about. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, something lacking and what is it? Revelation 6 says what it is. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony that they had given. And they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. So where do we get the strength to pursue God's dream for us when things seem so hopeless down here? If you watch Dr. King preach this sermon on the mountaintop, the last one, he looks so tired. He looks a little anxious and fatigued. Well, where do we get the strength to do what he did? To say at the end, longevity has its place, but I just want to do God's will. Genesis 15 tells us where we need to remember the promise God made to Abraham. God said in verse 8, uh, Abram said in verse 8, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? How can I know this promise is going to come true? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so he brought these to him and cut them in half. And he laid the opposite pieces of, from each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly a great terror and darkness descended on him. Now, why was Abram afraid? Well, because this is called cutting a covenant. And the way that this works is the sovereign makes a contract. He makes a promise. He says, I'm going to give you this. And then the recipient says, absolutely, I'm going to receive it. What conditions do you require for me to be faithful to receive this? And then the sovereign says, these are my conditions. And then you cut these sacrifices. This is the cutting of the covenant part. And normally, the recipient walks between the pieces, and the, and the recipient is saying, may this happen to me, may God strike me down and tear me apart and kill me if I don't live up to my promises to you, my sovereign, so that this promise can come to me, if I don't keep my half of the deal. But instead, look at what happens 
Abram goes to bed terrified, thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to live up to this. I'm 100 years old. I'm foreign. I don't have an heir. I don't know where he's sending me. I'm powerless. And, and I, I don't have a great track record. I've sold Sarah out to Pharaoh a couple of times already. Genesis 15, 17. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. God was a pillar of fire by day and smoke, I mean by night and smoke by day. Right? That, who does Moses talking about here? Do you see the good news of the gospel? God walks between the sacrifices. God says, in effect, may this happen to me if you don't keep this, your end of this bargain. The promise is still going to come true. Because the promise is not conditioned on you getting it right. The promise is conditioned on me getting it right. Amen? And 2,100 years later, the Apostle Paul explains that that took place. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then God has also made you an heir. When you are united to Christ, you are the heir of Abram. The promise is coming to you. Galatians 3.29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed, heirs according to to the promise. There will be a day when Dr. King's dream becomes a reality, a day when our faith becomes sight, a day when the lamb who was slain returns to the earth as the lion of Judah and establishes the rule and reign of God over the entire planet, a day when little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. But that day isn't here yet. In many ways, that day feels farther away than it did when we started this church and dreamed of a community of churches who would glorify God by coming together and loving one another with the love that comes from God and serving one another with the strength that God provides. So how are we to live into this dream ourselves? Well, the same way that Abram did, the same way that Moses did, the same way that Isaiah did, and the same way that Dr. King did, by communing with one another, by partaking of the family meal together as we wait the fulfillment of the dream. And as we do that, we become a foretaste of a future reality, because today, on a Sunday before we celebrate the birth of Martin Luther King Jr., a Korean-American friend of mine asked a white man born and raised in a segregated southern city to come and preach to his multi-ethnic congregation in worship that was led by an African-American friend of mine. That's a miracle, y'all. That's a miracle. That little appetizer of the dream coming true. And like Dr. King, I can say, 
I want you to know today that we as a people will get to the promised land. I'm so happy right now. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our living hope. And because that's true, all the promises of God are yes and amen in you. Lord, we want to speed the day of your return by living holy and godly lives. And so we pray that you would forgive us for our many trespasses and that you would instead, Lord, grant us the grace of the deep, deep love of God for each other. And we ask this in your name. Amen.